Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. As parents, our focus is creating a and providing a safe environment that's comfortable for, to allow our kids to be kids. But how do we do that? Especially when children are highly influenced by things and people around them. Well, that's the topic that we're looking into today. To assist me in this conversation is researcher, teacher, and mother, Dr. Rebecca English. Her work combines parenting and education for a lot of people and a lot of studies that provide that. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining me on the show today. It's my pleasure, Gina. So one of your focuses is looking at non-mainstream education. Yep. And that is really interesting to me because I think we spoke about that just a little bit earlier. Um, being homeschooled personally as a during my high school years, that was very affecting a lot of my independence and sort of brought in a lot of the ability for me to be independent. And it's really interesting talking about having that positive and safe environment. So how did you get into talking about and sort of researching the aspect of non-mainstream education? Okay, this is a bit of a like longish story. So my own childhood was really very unpleasant. I came from quite a traumatic childhood environment. I was, uh, I don't know, I don't really want to necessarily go into it, but it was a really unhappy childhood. And I didn't ever expect to have children. And about 13 years ago, I found myself pregnant quite unexpectedly. A doctor told me that was impossible. But here I was, and I knew that I wanted to do something really different with my own children. And I was finishing my PhD. I was getting to the end of that. So I was looking for a new research area. And I happened in my personal reading around being uh, not, my parents are quite aggressive people, very authoritarian. I really didn't want that. So researching around that led me to uh, a whole new world, which is where I have been ever since. And not only did I learn about authoritative parenting, gentle parenting, I also learned about alternatives to mainstream school at the same time because a lot of parents who make a different choice for their own children find themselves also making a different choice in terms of education. So I think that's really how I wound up here. Well, it's it's so interesting because you talk about high school, especially we talk about school as a social aspect and we talk about how important it is for kids to have that social act aspect and sort of go through that environment, sort of like a rite of passage. But talking about homeschooling and getting a child, because I know for me, I focused a lot more on school the minute that I was homeschooled. And it was so interesting to sort of not have an experience where I'm swept up and caught up in the um, gossip, in the teen things that goes on. And I was just having that ability to be who I, whoever I wanted to be or not be whoever I wanted to be. And being taken out, because I did have a primary school experience, like 
mainstream school, um, public school and all of that. But then high school was a completely different aspect. And the environment, you could feel the difference. And so it's really interesting to talk about the the hype behind non-mainstream school, especially now after COVID. Yeah. And after all these different things, we found out that we can homeschool our kids or there's an ability to do that. So before we get wrapped up in the topic, uh-huh. um, I know that I will get wrapped up in it and I've said that to you before. Um, we love to do a little get to know you. Uh-huh. So sort of get to know you as a person before we get to know you as a professional here today. Okay. So just comment on the first thing that sort of comes to your head when I ask you the different areas. Yep. Um, so what is one of your favorite genres in <laughs> books? Okay, so I'm an English teacher, so we talk about them as text types. And my favorite text type would have to be speculative fiction. I love spec fic. Okay, so what kind of, do you, can you list an example of a book? Um, so an amazing book would be um, anything written by Philip K. Dick is amazing. And he wrote this amazing book, which is called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is the book that Blade Runner is based on, although it's really different. Okay, wow. That sounds very interesting. I've it's never heard of, yeah, I've it's never heard really of good that book. yet. Yeah. Okay. I have to search that up straight after this. <laughs> yeah, I do. It's a really good story. Yep. So next one is, what was your most recent movie? I didn't really watch films because I have young children, but I think um, I love, this is going to sound like I'm a complete nutter, but I love war films. And I think the best war film ever made was Downfall, which is a German war film about the end of the Second World War. And it's just really brilliant. And it's the one where all those memes of Hitler screaming at people comes from. Oh, okay. Okay. Now I know where it originates. <laughs> yes. There's a great one at the moment where he talks about uh, something about you wouldn't feed an orangutan or something. You should look for that meme. It's really funny. And once you hear him saying it in English, German, it's like you can't miss it. Okay. I have to go look. There's a lot of things I'm going to have to look up today. <laughs> for sure. What about your favorite podcast? My favorite podcast... Uh, to be honest, I love also the news. So I really enjoy listening to the Guardian podcasts. They are really a great way to catch up on the news while you're doing the laundry or going for a walk or if you just need a bit of quiet in the car. Yeah, I, I love the Guardian. I love the way that they, even the writing, the way that the articles are written is really, it's not, it's not hyped up. It's yeah. not something that's over-exaggerated. So it's, I really like that. Yep. Um, how about a famous role model of yours? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't. I actually don't really know about role models. Um, I can tell you someone who I don't like. I love the Smiths, the band, because okay. like I, I'm not that old, but I am old. But I just I can't stand Morrissey. So he's like a like an opposite of a role model. Let's say that. Okay. Well, that's an issue. I've never heard that one before, but we will. I'll take that. Thanks. <laughs> now, how about the most recent course that you've completed? Oh probably one of those awful training courses you do at work you know the ones where you just go and then do the test at the end I think it was probably the health and safety one okay yep I think that I've done too many health and safety ones for me to really ever list them all (laughs) oh my gosh yes crazy right yeah I know not to set a bomb off in a classroom like got it got it got it yeah Yeah. exactly yeah now talking about parenting today and Thank you for joining us on the parenting show to be able to talk about this. Everyone has a very different definition as to what parenting is and how they understand what sort of partakes in the role as a parent. Yep. What would your definition of parenting be? 
I think my definition of parenting would be safely stewarding a young person to adulthood. Okay. And do you have any advice or anything that you would want to share with an expectant parent sort of going into that role of being a mentor and being a parent? I think people, particularly older people, you know, you see pregnant women or you see children, parents with young children, very young children, and there's always that, oh, dull, enjoy it because it goes so fast. And I think, yes, it it does go fast. It, it genuinely does. But when you are in that mine, when you are down there digging away at that coal, it doesn't feel fast. You know, there's that awful trite expression that days are long, but the years are short. And that is really true. But when you're in those long days, I think we need to be more empathetic and understanding. The other thing I think we need to advise parents is that you aren't going to love all of it. And, you know, you would die for your kids, but sometimes you just want them to shut up. Like there is honestly that sort of double-edged sword. Yes. Yep. I think I've had that advice far too many times on the show as well. And it's been, it's, it's such a thing that you, I think I've had a lot of guests where they say you would die for them, but sometimes you would die because of them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting to sort of see the strength of parenthood and how much of it that takes over your life and how things are never really the same once you become a parent. No, absolutely not. <laughs> so we're talking about having a positive and safe environment for kids and how parents can do that. Yep. What does a safe and a positive environment mean for an adolescent development? I think with adolescents, we seem to expect that they're going to be surly and they're going to be petulant and they're going to be rude. And I don't think we have to experience that. I think if we establish limits that are fair and equitable and understanding of that child and that individual child in front of you, not their brother or their sister, that child in front of you, we could possibly avoid many of those sort of experiences that everybody expects to have with an adolescent. And I think really what we need to remember about parenting an adolescent or parenting an adult is it starts with that baby that's in front of you and those boundaries and that communication and that relationship that you establish really early. That is the foundations on which the rest of the house, the rest of that journey with that person is built. And I think, you know, we get this baby, but actually we're raising an adult. We aren't really raising a child. That's a very different aspect. And looking at it, you're raising an adult for the world. You're not raising a child and just sort of building that up as it goes. Why is it important for us as parents to prioritize that and look and prioritize a positive and safe environment? I think Maybe it's not for some people. Maybe some people really need that control and that's okay. You know, I think I have no relationship with my parents. They sent me a letter a couple of years ago making it very clear we were done. And I really would be devastated if my children felt that that was somewhere that we were going. For me, I, I met these people. I think they're amazing. I just can't get enough of them. I think they're wonderful. Yes, I wish they would shut up sometimes. Sometimes I just want to sing along to music in the car and I don't want to have a conversation about this Lego thing you've built or what's going on outside or why a truck has six wheels. But at the same time, I think really we are, to me, it's really important to know those people. And I want to know them, not the image of them that I have in my head, but who they 
genuinely are in that moment. And I think it's interesting as a sociologist to think about identity in that and to understand that identity, as Stuart Hall tells us, is a process of becoming. And who you are today and who you are tomorrow or even 10 minutes from now may be really different. But I want to know those people. And I think if we establish open lines of communication, if we keep those communication lines open, we should be able through adolescence and beyond to still know that person for who they are Mm -hmm. in that moment. No, it's... I love the way that you're looking at it and love the way that you're sort of describing the way of like building that safe environment for them, for them to just be themselves, for them to, if they are interested in sort of a Lego build, then that's what, that's the thing that you want to have a conversation with because that's their interest and that's something that they're wanting to talk about and giving that safe environment where they're not being shut off from that, I think is really important. Like, especially the way that I was raised, I was raised to always just, it was very different to how I sort of see parenting now and the way that just do what you're told, just sit down and just, this is what you're supposed to follow. You're supposed to do this. I don't have time to listen to it yet. I don't have time to listen to what you're interested in. And I also think that was a big aspect of me being at home 24-7 during (laughs) high school where I had no one else to talk to but my mom or my dad or my sister and we got tired and we all got sick of each other by the end of it. So there's that huge aspect of trying to find the balance between letting them build themselves up but also you having the responsibility to build them up as well. And look, sometimes I fail miserably, Dina. Yesterday, I was trying to write this email. I have a student who's had some issues coming back and, you know, starting again. And I, I, I mean, I did tell my kid, oh, can you just please shut up? Like, just shut up. I just need to write this email. Shut up. And then I felt awful. So I think it's okay to say, hey, I'm really sorry. In that moment, I was super stressed. That is not an excuse, but that has an explanatory intent for you for why I behaved the way that I did. You know, and I think if I go back to the Smiths, because I'm a like massive fan, I know they're a problematic band, but massive fan, you know, Morrissey sings this line in a song and he says, you know, it takes strength to be gentle and kind. And I think sometimes when I'm not gentle and I'm not kind, I need to point out to my children that the reason I'm not gentle and kind is because I'm actually feeling really weak right now. Like I'm stressed about this student. I've got three other student issues that I'm trying to also like deal with in my own head. And for me, I I have to apologize. And I think parents forget sometimes that it's okay to go, hey, I stuffed that up completely. I'm really sorry, kiddo. Let's, can we have a do-over? Can you forgive me? Because these are the reasons I behaved the way that I did. Yeah. And I think that sort of shows the the understanding that parents are still people as well. They're still going to go ahead and sort of have so many things going on where they're not going to be a parent to you 24-7. They're not going to be a person that's there to listen to you 24-7, but they are going to be listening to you, just not at the time that you're wanting them to listen to. And I think I've had this conversation with my friends who have got a couple of children and they're finding that balance where they're full-time, they're working full-time. They're also being a parent straight after they get back and they don't have a minute to themselves. And that whole idea of just being forced to step into parent mode straight after they've been being a parent to so many other employees, so many other co-workers throughout the whole day, there's that chance of them. And 
holding themselves accountable later on being like, okay, I'm not able to do it now, but I will do that tomorrow. I will find a time where we can sit down and talk about this, but they're, they're holding themselves accountable for that. And I think that's a big part of parenting from what I've heard about this conversation. I'm not a parent myself, but I definitely have a lot of conversations with parents um, talking about accountability. And Uh sometimes you have to take, it teaches a child that how to be sorry for the reaction that you did and that you can just easily apologize and easily apology really fixes up a lot of things, a lot of reactions to that moment, to that situation. I think when I talk to friends who are no longer in contact with their parents, you lose contact with your parents, suddenly all your friends are in the same boat as you must be like an opinion leader in that front. Um, but I think, you know, when you talk to them about it, all of them have said the same thing. And it's just, I just wanted my mum to acknowledge how I felt about my experience and to say, hey, I'm really sorry. It wasn't, I wasn't what you needed in that moment. And I think if we can get the, and, and that's really hard, you know, like I was, angry with my kid because I kept saying to him, hey, kiddo, I really need to just got to write this email. Just got to write this email. Can't stuff this email up because it's part of a chain and this person may be a problem. I need to write this email correctly. I didn't have a right to tell him to shut up, right? And I think it's just about going, I can see that actually you were kind of in the wrong too, kid, but resisting the temptation to go and say that first and foremost, it's I'm sorry I overreacted. Next time, when I say I really have to write this email, maybe you can give me some space to write an email, but that doesn't excuse me telling you to shut up because that's actually really rude. I sound like the world's worst parent, you know. I'm telling everyone that I told my kid to shut up on this podcast. No. <laughs> Trust me, that is it's so normal. And I think we forget we forget that. And we sort of hype up parenthood as being a perfect adult, as being a perfect human in order for you to be a parent. And sometimes that is not the case (laughs) at all. And it's, I've learned so much from doing this show. I, like I said, I'm not a parent, but doing this for a year, I've seen so many parents and so many people who are both parents and also practitioners in the field and in children, how normal it is for their reaction to be and how normal it is for that reaction to hold on. It's so interesting and sort of when we're talking about providing a safe and positive environment, there is that need for also the realistic environment as well and balancing that realism in being a parent because you're not always going to be. And I think that's the thing, especially with me, that I forgot about my parents throughout the whole of growing up until I got to an adult is the understanding that they're adults, that there are people, that there are people who are going to mess up. There are people who aren't going to be brilliant. They're not going to know everything. They're not going to do, be able to do everything. No. They're not going to know how to teach me high school math when I can't <laughs> even understand it myself. <laughs> no. Like it's, it's so interesting. And I think I had this conversation with my mom, um, as an adult, I think a couple of months ago, we were talking about how I was raised and how we were, how we were being raised. And she's like, I was 21. I had no idea what I was doing. Mm. I had no understanding as to the kind of parent that I wanted to be because it all sort of came and hit me all at once. And there was no book on parenting at the time of being a parent. There was no understanding as to, and I wasn't, I didn't even build my own life yet. No. 21 year old who just moved out of, out of home and suddenly she was married and pregnant all at the same time. There was no ability to even know what kind of person she wanted to be, let alone what parent. Yeah. 
so, and I think that's what the difference between a sheltered childhood and also a realistic childhood, like sheltered kids, it's so different because you never see parents have problems. You never see parents go through that. Um, I mean, yes. Okay. Fighting and fighting between with your partner in front of children sometimes is not something that you want to expose a kid to, but also sharing the fact that you're not the perfect partnership, that you're not in the perfect marriage, that you are going to have issues, they're going to have problems. And I think that's really interesting when we're talking about the safe environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think an city an expectation that life is a bit rubbish sometimes. And, you know, it's the end of the paid for night. And I think I, it's 12, what is it? 1237 here. I think I get paid in the next couple of hours. And then I can buy your friend the birthday present I need to buy for the party. But at the moment, there's $17 in my account, kids. So like, I can't afford to do anything. I think that too, like, we're not going to starve because the kitchen is full of food. But at the same time, realistically, you know, I spend money on other things and I sometimes have to wait. And just being honest and age appropriate with those conversations. But at the same time, I think otherwise we do, we have a Pollyanna view of the world and we grow up expecting that, oh, but my mom never had this problem or my dad never had this problem. And I don't think that, I don't think that that's fair. I think, and I think when I hear you talking about your childhood, what I hear is your mother saying, hey, I made mistakes and and for that, I'm truly sorry. I was a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I think like I love talking about it as an adult now and talking about the experiences because it's nothing that she remembers. It's none of it. It's just she remembering the fact that she was yelling at me for not putting my laundry away because it's not an aspect of her childhood. It's an aspect of her just being an adult and being everyday person and being frustrated um, that you'd left your clothes all over yeah, the house. Exactly, exactly. So talking about a bit more about some of the characteristics of what a safe environment would contain, what are some of the key elements that would be providing for a safe environment for adolescents and also children who are a bit younger? I think realistically, we need to think about, there's a lot of work around nonviolent communication. And I think that's super important. Also, it's about saying, hey, when you did X, I felt Y. So we're not blaming. We're not putting anybody on the spot. We're saying that I had a reaction like this when the behavior was this. And I think the big thing really is separating the behavior from the child. It's not, you know, my youngest could talk the hind legs off a donkey. It's that when he talks a lot, sometimes I get overwhelmed because I do have, I'm a bit neurospicy. I find that a bit overwhelming sometimes and I need a little break. And I think that's nothing to do with him. Like It's great that he wants to talk. He has amazing array of things he wants to tell me about. But sometimes like I find it overwhelming. I am a little introverted. I do need a little bit of downtime. And sometimes I actually just need to sit at the back on the deck and stare at a tree and not hear a diatribe about, you know, this particular Lego piece you've built or this Votom's character you're suddenly like super into right now. Mm-hmm. And understanding that his sister is really different. She doesn't want to say very much at all. So I could be a bit more flexible with him because I know that he'll have something else to say. 10 minutes later, he'll be completely disconnected from whatever it is right this moment he wants to tell me. But if his sister wants to talk to me, you know, she's 12. She's, you know, a bit of a tween. 
if she wants to talk to me, that I tend to take more of an opportunity to listen because the opportunities to listen are shrinking fast because she's, you know, she's almost a teenager. And also she doesn't want to tell me everything all the time. So she wants to tell me something. This is something that's foundational to her identity and her development. And she needs me to listen. And I think that too. The other thing that I do with my three, and some people will think this is horrible. I tell each one of them individually that they're my favorite kid. And I tell them not to tell the others that they're my favorite kid, but you know what? You're my favorite kid. Who's my favorite kid? Me, but I know not to tell anybody else. They can tell each other when they're dead and they can have a fight over who really was the favorite, like just creating a nice drama for my funeral. But um, ultimately, I do tell each of them because I want each of them to feel deeply loved and deeply centered in their family. Yeah, and I love the way that you're sort of different the way that you're raising them is very different because they're different personalities and they're different sort of um feelings the way that they react to things is different and I mean I think I'm pretty sure my mom and dad probably did the same thing telling each of me and my sister that they're each other's favorite no Dina, and you, you were the favorite Dina I'm sure of it oh so yeah always I'm, just saying, I'm, <laughs> I'm very similar with your son I think and sort of like the constant talking the constant being and my sister is very similar to your your daughter but she was very quiet and when she had something to say I think in a way we all listened a lot more because she was she hardly ever said anything she hardly ever had that space um because it was just me constantly talking but it's so interesting hearing the experiences and the different ways that you're providing that safe environment differently yes and doing that ability yeah, come, no, come, it's, come it's back in 20 years and then I'll tell you, Jesus, tough having a neurospicy mum with a difficult childhood, I'll tell you what. We'll see the memoir in 20 years then. <laughs> like, my mother. Yeah. <laughs> By the English children, yeah. Yeah. So some of the benefits that sort of come along with providing that safe environment, how can that impact a child's future well-being? I think children who have never been shamed about their behavior and never seen themselves as synonymous with their behavior have a different relationship to making mistakes so for many of us making a mistake is really like the end of the world right like I hate making mistakes I have so much shame but I had so much shame as a child that it just follows on from that so I genuinely think when you look at children have been raised this way they talk about having less shame and I think you know shame isn't always a bad thing it's sort of really central to our culture shame but I think we maybe we overdo the shame we put a bit too we we over pepper this we over egg the shame a little bit and maybe we don't want to do that and a child who understands that just as when I yell at you my behavior was wrong but I'm not a bad person I'm a stressed person I'm a busy person I'm overwhelmed person I think if we understand that, then I think there's less shame around admitting our mistakes. And, you know, if we learn anything at work, it's it's better to say up front, hey, I'm having a problem here before it becomes like a gigantic thing. I hope that they will grow up and be much more amenable to saying, hey, you're my line manager. This thing has come up. It could be a problem. Can we deal with it together without worrying that they're going to lose their job. And I, I don't know, you know, how you are, but, you know, my boss says, hey, but can I speak to you? And my immediate thing is, oh, my God, I'm going to lose my house because I'm going to be sacked because I'm now going to have to, like, find another job. And, 
it's nothing. He just wants me to take on a different unit or to ask if I know such and such. Or, you know, there's a PhD student who's struggling. Can you do it, please? Be a third supervisor or, you know, any of the things that happens in a workplace. And I think I, I would hope that they wouldn't have that kind of constant fear. Yeah. That yeah. I live with every day. Oh, yeah. I, I totally agree with you when it comes to that, that irrational fear or the rational fear that sort of comes along with any given moment. Yes. <laughs> So looking at some of the challenges or some of the obstacles that goes along with it, I know we've listed some earlier on, Mm -hmm. but what are some more specific challenges that sort of come about when you're providing, trying to provide that safe environment for a child? I think the biggest one is, and it's the same with homeschooling, anytime you do something that isn't normative, people look at that and think that's a criticism of me. So if you don't punish your child or you don't use rewards with your child, but your sisters and your brothers are, then maybe they struggle a little bit with this idea that you're not criticizing them. So there's them. There's also the parental challenges. So I think when your children decide to do something radically different from what you did, you can't help but think, hey, is this some kind of criticism of me as a parent and what I did, particularly if you've come from a place of you are the authority, you are the boss, you would expect then that your children will follow suit. And when they don't, I think they really sort of, it can be a real struggle for family members and friends. I think the other thing too is schools rely on parents parenting in a certain way. And because schools have to use rewards and punishments, I've, I've been a high school teacher, there really isn't a whole lot else I can do. And some of it is unfair. The whole class is punished because three kids keep, you know, doing whatever they're doing, acting out, throwing paper, whatever it is that they're doing. And it's very difficult, I think, for a child who's come from an environment where rewards and punishments aren't paramount, where it's a very gentle approach to parenting, to not look at that and go, hey, miss, that's patently unfair. Because it is. It's patently unfair that everybody in the class has to stay back because three kids were carrying on like pork chops. So I think there are some major challenges for people. I think another one is, I think we're all tired. We live in a cost of living crisis. We're stressed about money. We're stressed about time. It can be really difficult to hold space for our children, particularly when they're expressing emotions that maybe we don't think are legitimate. Like, you know, you having a tantrum because I can't listen to you right now as an adult, I look at this and I go, that seems ridiculous. Like, what what, what are you doing? This is stupid. That holding space and understanding that this child actually just needs to express their feelings right now, that can be really difficult too. Mm-hmm. I'm not selling this at my dinner. I'm not selling no, this really, at all. <laughs> you really are. Like, it's, I love it's hard, okay? <laughs> it's hard. Especially when you're talking about the difference in teaching between when you're at home and when you're in school, the amount of times that like my parents, they didn't really focus on the, okay, if you don't do something, you're not going to get this. They didn't really do that. But when it got to school, that was what it was focused on because you had 30 different kids who were raised differently in one environment. Yeah. And in in one room where a teacher is, one teacher is meant to deal with 30 kids. Yeah, absolutely. All different. Yeah. So that amount of like, and I think that's so different when it comes to non-mainstream schools, such as homeschooling as well, where you're put in an environment where 
your parenting is very important to how you're going to be doing in an educational environment. Yep. And having that space where you're, because I remember when I was homeschooled, I had a study that was pretty much turned into a classroom. Yeah. And you had like a different, it had periodic tables all around. We had different posters all about, and that was what we were meant to do. It was just me and my sister sitting in this made up classroom, felt to feel like a classroom and never did. Always felt like we were just mucking about, but we had that safe environment where we were just able to do that. It was so different in um, when I got to university and I was stuck in with like 20 kids who had no idea what they wanted to do and going to TAFE and just spending that whole time trying to figure out how to socialize with 20 odd kids. Yes. So some of the warning signs and we're moving on to the red flags that sort of come about. What should parents be aware of that may indicate that their child is not feeling safe or facing difficulties in that environment that you're trying to provide? I think drug use is always a big one. I think parents think, oh, acting like rudely to me. I I genuinely don't think that that is a red flag because I think if a child is who, who needs you literally for shelter and food is prepared to tell you to F off, well, okay, well, you're prepared to sacrifice all of your basic needs. I think that's not necessarily one, but I think a child who was previously, you know, quite happy to talk, goes really quiet, um, changes in friends, other changes in behaviors, they're generally a big red flag that things are difficult and it's okay to have a conversation with them and check in that they are okay. But if you've practiced that all the way along, then that's not necessarily going to be such a tough thing. I think it's probably quite hard to take a 14-year-old and try and flip it and be suddenly, okay, let's go from being really authoritarian to being really negotiating and gentle in our approaches. That can be difficult, but I wouldn't, I would hope, and I've certainly parenting texts seem to suggest that if you are opening, keeping those dialogues open, you you should be able to have a conversation around things. I think too, understanding that, you know, I I was 15 once. I remember what that was like. And Mm -hmm. it's hard to be a 15-year-old girl. And, you know, I'm sure my husband will tell you it's hard to be a 15-year-old boy and understanding that this is a tough time for them, but just keeping your door open. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what are some of the examples that you can give to sort of have that effective communication between a parent and a child that sort of enabled the trust that you're talking about? I think if you do it right from the beginning, Dina, I think you have to, it has to start as early as possible. I think the other thing is too, people think, oh, being gentle or being, you know, having a safe and comfortable environment for your child is synonymous with being, you know, completely anything goes. I don't agree with that. I think realistic limits that are enforced and held, but also open for some negotiation all the way through their childhood, allows them to know that there are boundaries and there are limits and that these are your values. But understanding that your child is not you, so their values may be different. But as long as you're consistent and you're gentle and you apologize for your mistakes, then you should be able to maintain that openness and that relationship going forward. Because, you know, it was that point I made at the beginning, you get them as a baby, 
That's how they pop out, but they are not a baby. They're actually a grown person that you're mm-hmm. raising that grown that growing person who becomes an adult, you know. Mm-hmm. So so name them like that too. They are going to be 80 one day, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so what are some of the practical steps that a parent can take to ensure the physical safety within the home and also protect their adolescents from potential risks and dangers that they may face? Yeah, you know, I think it's really easy as little kids. It's simple things like putting a, a lock on a cupboard or, you know, putting a carabiner on the gate so they don't leave. I think with an older child, it's about managing around the mobile phone and managing around technology. So I, I know this is really hard and this is something that I struggle with a lot as a parent. I just genuinely don't care about Minecraft. I cannot tell you how much Minecraft makes me grate my teeth. But when my kids play Minecraft with their friends, they play it in the same room where I'm doing whatever it is I'm doing so that I could be an observer to something that not only they're interested in, but also as a space where they might find themselves in trouble. So recently, my middle child was playing a PvP game with his friends. And one of his friends, I overheard her say, hey, can you stop killing me in Minecraft, please? And so we had to have a conversation about how, yes, I understand it's PvP, but do you want to win or do you want to not upset your friends? Because that's a really important distinction, right? There's a difference mm-hmm. between those two things. And I think really keeping it open, trying to meet your child where they are, that provides that space for them to feel comfortable and safe, but also to for you to protect them from issues that may come up for them that they may not even be aware of. And mm-hmm. roadblocks for me is a big no. Hard no yeah. on Roblox. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just going to mention that because when you mentioned Minecraft, I'm like, Roblox is something that so many kids... Oh, no, no, are, no. But it is, it is a dangerous game for kids to be playing, especially yeah. when you see the amount of adults on it as well. It's a scary environment. And Absolutely. I The amount of times, the amount of people that uh, some of my friends come to me and their kids are in starting to play the ages where they're playing video games and their friends are playing it. And the amount of conversations that I've had with them where they've overheard the amount of adults that are talking to them on Roblox is the most terrifying thing. And especially like we talk about social media being a really big thing, but we don't talk about gaming and the gaming industry and the amount of things that separate adults and children playing games. And it's fun for adults to be playing these games for kids who don't understand the risk and the things that sort of go along with it especially when it comes to real life stuff, separating the real world and your gaming your gaming name and your real name yes. is not something that should be combined. Absolutely not. I think really, you know, I don't want to make a moral panic about this because I think that, I mean, like I grew up with the satanic, satanic panic of the 80s and 90s, you know, heavy metal music was not going to make me kill my friends. But that's an awful thing to say. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I think that we do have to have limits and being participants in our children's lives allows us to have those conversations and a limit can be you can't turn it on until four o'clock but a limit can also be about don't maybe don't kill your friends if it's really upsetting them in a pvp game like maybe play something else for a while or you know and i think the other thing that's been really wonderful is i'm really friendly with my kids friends parents and having those conversations and seeing that we're all raising our kids the same way and so an example recently is um, my son is, you know, clearly a white boy because I'm as white as a sheet, right? I'm, I'm coaching that. Um, he said something that was really um, 
quite, uh, I, I was quite offended by what he had said. He'd made some sort of like really classist comment. So-and-so couldn't teach another friend how to play a piano because, you know, damn girl, you don't know how to play yourself. You don't have lessons. And I mean, the, the mother was upset and I understand that. And so we had a chat about it. And then I sat my son down and was like, but why do you have lessons? Because your parents can afford for you to have lessons. So think about the fact that your friend doesn't have lessons, not because she doesn't want lessons, but because there's a different, you know, access to resources there. And I think it's been really vital. So that strengthened my friendship with my kids' parents, but it also allowed a space for me to have a conversation gently with my kid about not being a, you know, pretentious idiot around his friends. Um, but also too about, so I think it, it helped him with his friendships as well. So being part of that environment and listening to what's going on when they're on those calls allows you to help them manage those relationships in a way that, you know, you're part of their lives and you're able to shepherd them, I think, in a way that maybe you aren't if you shove them in their room and they're doing it until 3 a.m. on Roblox and learning all sorts of stuff that you don't want them learning about. No, exactly. So what role does setting and enforcing clear boundaries play in creating a positive and safe environment? It's huge. I think that you can't be a good parent without setting boundaries. And I think some people will set boundaries and it will be very rigid. You know, my mother had a boundary where between nine and three every Sunday, I was to sit in my room and do my study. It didn't matter if it was week one of term or week nine or 10 of term. I was in there from nine until three. I had to ask if I wanted to use the toilet. I had 30 minutes for lunch. That was ridiculous because it was totally inconsistent with what was going on. And as a child, I reflected on her behavior and thought, wow, that says to me that you don't really understand what, how the changing term and the ebbs and flows of what I'm learning influence how much study I should be doing. It said that she didn't understand my environment. So I think, yes, limits are important. We have a limit that you can't turn the iPad on until four o'clock in the afternoon and then it goes off at seven. There's three hours in the evening, that's it. That's your iPad time. But if you're sick, for example, if you've been vomiting, or whatever, and you just lie down, then I relax that. You can just sit there and watch a bit of TV because, you know, I need to sit down and watch a bit of TV when I'm sick too. And I think music is another one. My children, they do music lessons. I've just, my, my kid got into the trouble with the music yeah. lesson. And so I'm paying these like private music lessons. They're expensive. So I expect that you sit down and you practice your music. If the teacher set you some practice, you have to practice. If you've got an exam coming up, my daughter has two A, B exams coming up. She has to practice for those. But, you know, again, if it's been a huge day or, you know, she's really emotional about something, well, it's okay to let the music slide. So it's such a nuanced thing. Limits yeah. are important. And 90% of the time you have to practice your music, but there will be things that come up and then you won't be practicing your music and it's okay. Yeah. And I, I love that way where it's like sort of, it's allowing them to, know that they have that space they have that space available where you're able to just live for a few seconds without any homework without anything where like there's exceptions to it where it's not a set routine and you can't get out of it there's no way if you're sick and you still have to go to school there are some kids that are still forced to go to school just because they're sick and did literally bring it to the whole classroom which is great for a lot of parents (laughs) (laughs) mom can still go to work and dad can still go to work but yeah Yeah, exactly yes so it's nice that there's some 
autonomy. There's still, still some independence where they're able to know that they are able to decide for themselves some ability. Also, also it's not, and I remember like I had a lot of friends in primary school where they had particular lessons that they had to do, whether it was extracurricular or anything like that. And because like you said, it was, it is expensive to do those private lessons because of that, they were held, it was held above their heads so like high. the sword of Damocles, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Like they just cannot get out of it. There's no way, there's no excuses. No. Um, if they didn't feel like going or if they were going through a tough time, they needed that little break because it is still school, essentially. It's still like a second part of school that they still have to do. Yeah. There was no way that they can get out of it to the point where they got burnt out very at a very young age. Yeah. So there is that. It's nice that it's not held above their heads the money aspect of it. It's not like there is that forceful because I paid this much, you have to do it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I think that's tough for a lot of kids. I think we, we forget that they have been at school all day. And for some kids, you know, they've been at outside school hours care either side of school as well. So, you know, maybe on Monday, Wednesday and Friday, they do morning at afternoon outside school hours care. They're at school all day. And then Tuesday, they might do music. And then Thursday, I don't know, soccer and then Saturday and Sunday they might have games I think we forget just how structured and how busy children are I think another thing too that it's really important and that a lot of gentle parenting experts will talk about is this notion of being bored it's okay to be bored sometimes I don't have to schedule everything that you do and if you're bored well like my mother's favorite one was oh you must be a boring person I, I don't think that that's true I think you're bored because you know you're so used to people telling you what to do all the time that to not have some scheduled time can be overwhelming for young people. And I think we need to understand that that can be overwhelming. Our old neighbor, God love him, Graham, his name was, probably still is, uh, when he retired, he came over, he'd come over like to the fence and try and have a chat every day. And we'd be like, Graham, we actually have stuff to do. And he'd be, and I remember him saying something to me very prescient. He said, no one up until this point, no one ever let me just have free time. You know, I my mom told me what to do and then I went to school and school told me what to do and then I got a job and my boss told me what to do and then suddenly I'm 67, 65, whatever, and nobody for the first time in my life is telling me what to do. And just this overabundance of time and no capacity to make those choices for myself was so overwhelming for him that, you know, he was just all at sea. He really was. And he would tell us about how overwhelmed he was with time and not knowing what to do. And I think that's something that we need to remember too is it's it's good to have lots of opportunities, to experience lots of things. But at the same time, young people really do need time to be bored. And it's in those spaces of boredom that they can think about who they are and what they want to be and, you know, what it is that they are interested in in the world. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's very fascinating when you're talking about boredom because especially when you're a child or when you're a teenager, you're sort of spent in like constantly doing something, constantly doing homework or doing anything during the weekends. And I remember during the weekends, we because we couldn't stay home alone at a young age, we had to follow wherever our parents wanted to go. So it was us going to shopping centers to a point where my sister and I cannot look at another shopping center to save our life. Um, and never will go on the weekend because we know the hectic that it, the hectic hours that it is. So there's that aspect of us just 
constantly doing what we were told and constantly following along with what our parents were doing and going to markets on Sundays when we didn't want to go to the market, but we couldn't stay home alone. So now, um, now that I'm driving and I'm taking my sister places, we're like, where do we go? Yes. Like what, what's the, what do we love to do? So now we're slowly taking on and building on hobbies that we wanted to do as kids, which is she wanted to roller skate and I wanted to learn to skateboard. So we're going to the sick skate park now and learning how to do that and trying and falling and failing, but we're doing something of our own choices, which is very different in the environment that we used to be in the environment that we were sort of put in as teenagers and younger primary people. school kids. Yeah. 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 That's so interesting. I think that's really important too, just to have that time to find yourself. And sometimes yeah. you have to wait until you're an adult in order to have the capacity to do that. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes you need to learn to drive yourself. <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes you've got to ring up the doctor too, you know, by yourself and make the appointment. Uh, I still can't do that yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just very glad that there's an online booking. 100%. I would book in if there's no online, if there's no online no. form, what's my business base? I don't trust it either. <laughs> no. I don't know this number. I'm not answering it. If they really no. want me, they'll leave Never. a message. <laughs> Never will ever answer a number I don't know. No, no, Absolutely. So now we're moving on to the practice and habit part yeah. of the show. Okay. What is a practice that you do to motivate yourself to strike a balance for a sense of autonomy? Um, for me personally, yeah. I lift weights. I know that seems ridiculous, but I love lifting weights. I broke my ankle a couple of years ago. I was walking like I was 10 meters from my house and my dog ran between my legs and oh, no. I completely destroyed my ankle. And I'm just getting back into it now. And I love weightlifting and it sounds ridiculous because you actually have to be really mindful about your practice because if you don't do it properly and you don't have correct form, you can really hurt yourself. So weightlifting forces you to be in that moment. And I have issues with anxiety and I really do. So I find weightlifting helps me if I'm really anxious to, I have to think about how I'm moving that bar because I have to do it properly. Otherwise I will, you know, break my back. But so weightlifting is great done well yeah. yes do you listen to music while you do it or is it silence um i used to but now i don't need anything else on it's you know five minutes where i don't have to but and the children will come down and they'll be like sorry mama blah 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 and i'm like i just no <laughs> please god no because there's a there's a huge study and i have had this conversation because with a lot of the people that i go to the gym with where it's like you're the a music... psychopath if you don't listen to music <laughs> no it's like it's also the level of intensity depends on the music. So if you don't listen to music, it means you don't need any motivation to do it and you know that that's what you're meant to do. But if you listen to music, then that's supposed to be the only way to get you motivated to go. Okay. So the self-motivation comes in, like if you don't listen to music, you're self-motivated. Oh, if you really? listen to music, yeah, there's that. So there you go. That, that's that's, on the back. that's such an important question for me to ask <laughs> everyone that goes because people don't. And I just stare at them like, how can you sit there? Like do it in silence. I need that <laughs> that little pump up. I have like a Taylor Swift pump up playlist. <laughs> and that's what I, that's the only thing so that Taylor motivates Swift me. for you, hey? You have to listen to pop music. Yes. Yeah. Not heavy Taylor, metal? I cannot stand heavy metal music. Okay. Because I think... <laughs> I, Usually when you go to the gym, it's often that or rap, hardcore rap they make you listen to. Rap I do. I can do rap, but I can't do like really scream stuff. I just have to like, okay, 
something that I know I can dance to in the middle of a set. <laughs> <laughs> and you see me dancing in the middle of a set always. <laughs> that sounds so awesome. So other than what we just talked about, what are three of some of the positive things that sort of come about when it talk about weightlifting in terms of having that balance? I think, like I said, weightlifting, for one, it's very much about being in that moment, which I think none of us really are. It's, you know, the world is crazy. It's really difficult to be centered in that moment. So for me, one is it's about being centered in the moment. Two, it's something that's just for me, not me as my employee, me as a wife, me as a mother. It's just me as a person. And three, I am sure it is helping my brain health in terms of, you know, my fitness is really sort of very strongly correlated with being not not developing dementia, which is something that's, you know, obviously a big fear. I'm well into middle age. Um, And I think too, not losing strength. And I have read, if it's okay to say menopause, uh, that menopause is better for people, for women or women identifying people who uh, lift weights. So yeah, that's three reasons why I think it's vital to do it. I know that's, and sort of in contrast to that, what are some of the challenges that you found when trying to go through weightlifting and trying to do a set i bet that i hate exercise (laughs) that's a huge challenge and sometimes i look at like it's down into my house right i have uh, with covid i built a bit of a gym under my house i'd always done it with a trainer and you know my trainer explained that the role of a trainer is to to you know take themselves out of a job really to train you to do it so that you didn't need them so there's like mirrors down there and it's like there's a bar olympic bar and there's you know bumpers and collars but yeah I still hate it I still don't want to go downstairs and do it yeah COVID is probably the best and the worst thing that sort of happened when it comes to trying to be self-motivated in fitness absolutely absolutely I was so motivated until COVID hit and then I'm like oh I have to build up all of that again yes yes you do unfortunately yes (laughs) so how do you think that this practice impacts your ability to parent and your focus on parenting I think it gives me a chance to be myself. It gives me a chance to take a little break from being a parent because they're upstairs, they're safe and you know I can just go downstairs under my house and do it. I also think it models for my own children being healthy and having a healthy life practice. I think, you know, I tend to do intermittent fasting and that's, I think, can be not good sometimes. I know I get really strict with it when my mental health isn't in a great place, but weightlifting is always good. It always shows them how to have a healthy relationship with exercise. Um, I think, you know, my mother was petrified of sweating, you know, God help you that you might have some of your makeup shoved off your face. Oh my goodness. And she used to tease her hair because, you know, the higher the hair, the closer to God, like it was proper. She had, she couldn't have fitted in frame. Her hair was so big. Um, Mm. And I think, you know, for her exercise was just like verboten. You just didn't, ladies don't exercise. And I think it's really important for my daughter to see that being strong is great and also for my sons to see that women exercise women lift weights and that I'm strong and healthy and I enjoy feeling fit and healthy in my body so yeah yeah and I think weightlifting has that little aspect where it's like women can be physically strong and they can have muscles and they can um lift weights as much as a man and it's I think especially in this day and age it's so important to sort of have that ability to do it absolutely and show that you can absolutely yes yes I don't want to be a crotchety old woman who can't walk up some stairs I'd like to you know be able to carry my shopping into the house as an 80 year old 
Yeah, well, my my grandma, she's probably in her mid 90s and she still climbs trees. That's amazing. Like get the fruits from the tree and to sell them. And she still climbs them herself. Um, Every time she's probably this about this tall of a woman. Yeah. But she will climb a tree to do anything. That's amazing. She'll climb on the top of the roof and change the shingles herself. And it's it's amazing to see. Your grandma is a spirit animal for all of us. I know. I know. I can't even I'm still scared to be able to climb a tree <laughs> at this age at 25 and I still can't do it. And she's just climbing up like it's like it's a normal thing, her everyday life. Okay, ain't no thing, yeah. Yeah. So it's amazing to see how important physical health is yes. in terms of that, which is which is great to see that we are promoting that on the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now we're into the last section, which mm-hmm. is our open mic. And yeah. as I said, it sort of gets you a chance to talk to anything that you want to talk to the audience about. And I know we've spoken a lot uh, today, but is there something that you would love to talk to the audience about or even just promote yourself? don't know I hate this sort of thing like I don't really know um I don't know I I guess if I had to say something to the audience it would be be gentle with yourself too I think we get so caught up in trying to be good and trying to be perfect that we let it be the enemy of the good enough and I think that really is if I had to say anything, it would be don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good enough. And, you know, if you're thinking about what you're doing and you're trying hard to be a better person, you're definitely doing good enough. That is actually the perfect way to end the show <laughs> and the perfect like final takeaway from what we're talking about today. And having that safe environment also means being a little bit real with yourself and with the environment that you're tr- trying to raise your kids in, which is so important. Thank you so much. So if, is, if there's any way that audience members would like to get in touch with you to talk about this even further or to even ask questions that I, I definitely know I've missed, yeah, is there any way that they are able to reach you? Yeah, I have um, a QUT email account. Feel free to email me at my at QUT account. I'm really easy to find on the internet. Okay, perfect. I will have that down in the show notes down below so it's Thank easy you. for everyone to find it. Thank you. So thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining me on the show. And I love the realness that you've definitely shown on the show, which is, it's so, it's so great to see, because I know a lot of other podcasts, a lot of other shows really talk about the idea of the perfect parent and what the perfect parent is. But sometimes I love that we're able to have that realness on our show where we're talking about the realness in parenting and the real experiences from mothers and parents who are able to share those experiences so freely which is it's so great to see you know like i've i've honestly loved this show so much (laughs) thank you so thank you guys so much for listening and i will see you all in the next episode you've been listening to raising parents the parenting science insights podcast produced by the parenting science labs a division of lmsl the life management science labs more episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at pa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.